This talk was given by Michelle Sege Spark at Zen Mountain Monastery. Sege is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everybody. And I haven't been here in a while, so uh, and I can't see that well. So please bear with me if I may have to refer to my notes. And given that, uh, which I'll explain later more about, I thought I would talk today on um, right view or right seeing, since uh, I personally have been looking at that. And right view is a basic teaching, and it's the first step on the Eightfold Path. Um, and it encompasses the Four Noble Truths. Um, to look at the Four Noble Truths correctly. Uh, but there isn't any right or wrong. It's more directly and personally. Um, and so the Four Noble Truths, um, and I'm doing some basic uh, looking because I, uh, I work a lot with inmates and I was thinking about how they have no context often, other than maybe they have books sometimes, when they encounter Buddhism in, in, uh, when they're in, incarcerated. Um, sometimes they don't even have that. And um, a, a while ago, like a number of years ago, we got a, a, a letter from an inmate who said, well, what do I do with my hands? I had no idea what the Buddha looked like, never seen a sculpture, and it quickly informed us that we hadn't even included a picture of somebody sitting in, <laughs> in our basic instructions. So um, I'm always dealing with basic teachings, and I reflected that um, when I first came here, I didn't know anything. Uh, there wasn't, I don't think there were books much, and all I knew about was Zazen, uh, and I liked that, and Dadaroshi often said that the teachings went beyond words and letters, and I felt great relief, because then I didn't have to think about anything or learn anything. You know, nobody could tell me anything anyway. <laughs> So, going back to the basics all the time and refreshing ourselves is a good idea. And in the last few years, we've been reading In the Buddhist Words, which is a collection of original oral teachings by the Buddha that have been handed down from the Pali Canon um, and collected by Bhikkhu Bodhi, and I highly recommend the book. So... um, Zen practice purportedly goes beyond, past, through, and all these words of complete presence um, about direct seeing, right view, um, but doesn't really get into the nitty-gritty of the more earlier teachings. Or it, it does, it assumes that we all know this, so I thought it would be nice to look at this a little bit. And in that sense, uh, right view, the Buddha said that the teachings are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So all along, we need to see. Um, So the Four Noble Truths, again, that that was, uh, I thought, well, gee, they basically are, their life is suffering. Uh, There's a cause of suffering there's a way to end suffering, and then the Eightfold Path, and the first step is right view, which encompasses these four noble truths and actually um, looks at the process of how these things arise. When I encountered the four noble truths, I thought, well, aren't they just one truth? I couldn't see. I couldn't even remember <laughs> the three steps because they seem so simple, and they seem so, like, all together. I mean, how do you even... Separate them. They're just one thing, right? And uh, I think that's why I was attracted to Zen, because you could just bypass, kind of go. Anyway, 
Um, but what does that mean? You know, what is uh, life is suffering? Well, you could say I'm just I'm unhappy. What's causing my happiness? You know, I want to be happy. You know, what's wrong with that? What, what's causing that? And it's just directly pointing, as as um, Gokhan was talking yesterday, to our desire that. Our desire is always pushing us in one way or another. And you could use the word, happy, I want happiness, or I'm slightly miserable, or you could have a temperature gauge, however you want to describe it. That is the first noble truth. And it's good to personally come up with <laughs> your own way of uh, describing it, because then you start to see your pattern of forming it. That, that's always pushing you in a direction. So, you know, uh, mine was probably something like, oh, you know, I, I could be happy, I might be happy, I, I really want to be happy, <laughs> and so forth. But because I'm Jewish, it was more like, I'm so miserable. <laughs> anyway, so it's good to look at how we phrase things to ourselves, because... We're just repeating, boomeranging these truths that we've heard all our lives. and So that's another thing. And when we look at uh, this, we see that every minute the world is ending, and then it's beginning again. It's arising again, that there's this cycle. Um, and then another thing that is talked about, um, well, Bhikkhu Bodhi divides... This is interesting. This is how they do it in, in more uh, analytical Buddhism. They divide things and number things. So right view is in, divided into two, conceptual right view and experiential right view. Conceptual right view is a clear intellectual grasp of the Dharma. So that satisfies our need to know and investigation and, and things like that. Experiential right view is more directly seeing things as they are for us, which is what I was mentioning. And to look directly at how the Four Noble Truths are true to us. So he says, when one sees this with wisdom, and wisdom is with these two combined, um, with concentration, really looking closely, one turns away from suffering. This is the path of purification. So in the conceptual view of suffering, there are supposedly three marks of conditioned experience. And I'm just going to say them out loud because I think they're useful. Um, they kind of, it's like looking at um, a fishbowl from angles, different angles underneath, you know, on top, through, so forth. So the first one is anika, which is impermanence. So that's a reason to be miserable. Things change. <laughs> well, they could change for the better. Um, the unsatisfactoriness of life, that things are suffering, that they that our desire, this is where the personal desire part comes in. That's called dukkha. And the third is the basic non-self or non-identity of all things. Uh, that's a very complex idea as a concept. It means, could mean one, that one thing is not substantially uniquely a self, like this stand, because it was a tree, and then it got varnish on it, then it took this shape, and then it'll last for a bunch of years, and then it's going to be something else. So it, there isn't any fixed permanent identity. Um, one of the things we notice in zazen is that our sense of ourselves change depending on our mood or our thoughts or our body tension or the time of the day. And we may not even think of it like I'm viewing myself differently now, but, you know, maybe you should think of it that way because it loosens uh, a more, like, stuck, clogged up like view of personality, you know, and it could help you feel freer and to act freer. Um, oh, we know this through um, science. We don't live 
every day in science, but, you know, we live through the seasons. And, you know, the, the, the way it looks out there now is fortunately not going to look like that in April. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, that's uh, non-self. Um, he, he speaks of the kinds of intellectual um, advantages of using the mind intellectually to view concepts. I, I actually turned around and like that better now because I feel more uh, comfortable. So concentration. Um, let's see. Ah, yeah, here we are. So concentrative effort. So that's uh, maybe focusing on and counting our breath. Um, determination to sit, to sit, to sit all these hours and to return when you don't feel like it. All the practices that we do together, the chanting, memorizing the liturgy, and really taking it in, trying to understand what it means. And that's interesting, too, because in all the, uh, a lot of the inmates that I work with, um, you know, we do send out liturgy, but it's rare that they speak about the Heart Sutra and what that means to them. So what is the Heart Sutra for you? What is that? That's, that's a supposedly a complete teaching of million, you know, 25,000 words in a, in a page. How can that be? So it requires a kind of study, self-study. Um, and in this way, the Dharma sinks into, uh, no, in this way, we penetrate directly through meditation, he says. And I turn that into like, well, okay. The Dharma sinks into and suffuses me like an atmosphere or a perfume. It doesn't have to be so aggressive. <laughs> and the mystery of that, the mystery of that, the enlightened way of being, uh, may we realize the Tathagatha's true, true teachings. So sometimes when we enter practice, we enter through different Ways I mentioned how I entered a sort of uh, defensively uh, wanting to just do something directly. But there's nothing wrong with thinking or reading or investigating or analyzing. All of those things, it's called contemplation. There's words for that. And in Buddhist practice and training, people do that. Maybe, maybe you know, so, so when you're sitting on your seat, and your mind starts to construct this fabulous palace of intricate thoughts, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I don't hear anybody saying, what? <laughs> uh, well, what, what is wrong? What, what do we discard? What we, what we discard or what we judge is when we, we make our, our misery out of it when we get stuck there and we think it's a solid thing. It's called clinging, attachment. Um, it's called a view that's not really aligned, not right view, right? So these are things that we consider. Um, um, so again, with Bhikkhu Bodhi um, and his conceptual right view, he he talks about the chain of karma and the links of causation as something that we need to deeply investigate. So that, in a way, is combining both your experiential right view and your, your intellect to look at these, how things coalesce, how the palace got built, or how the hell realm got built. Okay, So he says, if conceptual right view... Oh, first he says, hold on, sorry... So you want to notice the basic activity of your mind, the thoughts, sensation, perceptions, and see it as like the structure of the Four Noble Truths. So one observes its arising, its abiding, or if you fuel it, how it keeps building, its fading away, its cessation, and it's, it's gone. And to see this circle in, our, in our, both our life and in our minds, um, is, is reassuring because we can then view things correctly, a little more collect, correctly. We don't get caught into, as Gokan was saying, you know, a belief system that this is fixed and you're entrapped by. 
one thing he says, um, no entity is isolated and self-enclosed, but is rather inherently linked to other things in a complex web of dependently originated processes. Now, I could never have written that. That's kind of like that, though. So to see these relationships and these causes and this web, to really look at it closely. And that's why uh, the beginning of the path, the right view, the taking in of the teachings and applying them, sets us on the path. The Zen way of putting it is to see life as it is, see reality as it is, you know, kind of bare bones. We do this through all the practices of our body, speech, and mind. And we try to turn the smaller, fearful self into the benefaction of loving and caring for others. And that's a practice, actually. So to feel centered and part of the universe um, is an unselfish act. So some of the questions you might want to ask yourself is, what, is, what does my mind do with joy or misery? What, how do I respond to that? What is my pattern? And to look at the pattern. And then how can I live a good life with this body and mind that I've been given right now? And Sashin enables us or helps us to turn from the outward looking for those answers to the inward looking. I always wondered about that. I always thought, oh, it's easy to look inside. Well, it's not so easy. It's not so easy. You know, I thought, well, what am I doing here? Well, you could be daydreaming about something that happened in the past, et cetera, et cetera. Gokhan laid that out very nicely about um, reconstruction of experiences. And how do we directly sit with the experience of now when there's nothing going on? There's, like, nothing going on. Uh, I always thought there was something going on, and I was missing it in session. <laughs> and I would listen for the doors. Oh, did Dido come late? Why is he late? You know, I, I just really needed, craved some, some input. It was, it was sad, really. <laughs> anyway, so I have an example it's a nice, it's like a neutral example because of how things can shift. That to take your mindset and to really change the point of view from, for me, the way I approached with Zazen, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to really understand myself. And that's how I'm going to, I'm going to be happy. And in, ex, in a way that was like, an extent of therapy that didn't really work. So to take something else, the forms that we're giving, and to start to equalize our pattern of method of working with ourselves so that the forms that we're engaging with start to become just as real and just as something we can turn to and fill and embody as all the other stuff we thought was supposed to work, okay? Because it doesn't always. So I have this... Um, the reason I'm doing this is because I have this art piece that a friend of mine made many, many years ago. And it's, it's a dualistic view of two things, of the same story, and that's why I'm picking it, um, as an example of shifting views. And granted, this is just a creative metaphor. It's not really emotional. Or And what it is, is it's these um, sculptures that are in bas-relief. They're about 8 by 8 inches each. They're the same size. And in each frame is St. Francis, San Francisco. San Francisco, who is Italian. Um, so there's St. Fran- Francis in each one. And in one, he's, he's tiny, and he looks like he's lower down on a hill. Um, and so these are made out of plaster. And then they're on a scaffolding of tin. That's just so the plaster shape of the thing, of the sculpture is glued to the tin. And in one, he's very small, 
and he has his arms upraised, like, um, uh, since it's audio, it's sort of like the sun salutation, like, you know, raising to the sky and looking at the sun, you know. And in the other one, he's large, and his hands are sort of semi in prayer, but one of them is offering. So one hand is out, offering, and the other is up. And on the other side, in each one, there are birds. So in the one where he's small, there's a a bunch of birds sort of on these straight branches of tin, and they're all large. Um, And because they're large, I guess, they're different shapes, and they're doing different things with their wings. And in the other one, where he's large, the birds are small. And they're all uniformly formed. So I love this piece. It's beautiful. And I always thought it was this, not my tradition, I thought it was St. Francis feeding the birds. Well, I found out last week, it's St. Francis preaching to the birds. There's a difference, I think. So I looked up the story. Um, and it's an interesting story because the point of view changes in the story if you really, really get into it. So anyway, he had great doubts about his faith and his ability and what he had to offer. Sounds like something we sit with. Um, but he had great aspiration and determination, again, and he had great faith in, in the, the zeal of how he felt. So these are the three pillars of Zen. Uh, great faith, great doubt, great determination. So he got affirmation, I believe, from some other saints um, to go preach because, you know, he had something to say. And so they all head out. <clears throat> they go on their way and he's going to preach. And um, suddenly, they come across, a, there's a tree in a field, and there's this flock of birds in the field, in, in the tree. <clears throat> and St. Francis breaks away from his companions and runs up to them. And he says, <clears throat> this is from the Little Flowers of St. Francis, My sweet little sisters, birds of the sky, you are bound to heaven to God, your creator, in every beat of your wings, in every note of your songs, offer your love. You have been given the greatest of gifts, the freedom of the air. You neither sow nor reap, yet you are given the most delicious food, rivers and lakes to quench your thirst, mountains and valleys for your home, tall trees to build your nests, and the most beautiful clothing, a change of feathers with every season. Clearly, you are loved in purity and abundance. Boy, I wish I'd been a bird on that tree. (laughs) Right? And the birds, in response, say, or move, open their beaks and stretch out their necks and spread their wings and bend their heads reverently towards the earth. With acts and songs, they bowed their bodies in pleasure and appreciation of St. Francis. And as the story goes, he blesses the birds, he rejoices at their attention and tameness, and he thanks God for them. Then they flew away, some heading north, south, east, and some west, going out in all directions to spread God's love that they have just heard to other creatures. So this kind of demonstrates a number of things. I just love the story. <laughs> That's really why I put it in there. But um, So that's what's the right view of that story? What's the correct view of that story? I mean, I've been looking at that artwork for 20 years. Is it my story that's correct? That, you know, maybe... In the first one where he's small and the birds are large, he's saying, come here, come here, come here. Or is he saying, see ya? I don't know. And then is he feeding them or are they feeding him? 
Is he feeding, is he preaching to them or are they preaching to him? And where am I? Where, where, where are we when we hear this? Is this something that I can take in as Dharma food? So this is kind of a narrative way of describing right view. So when we look to consider that our view can be much larger, that we can realign with a teaching if it speaks to us, or a phrase that we chant, something the teacher said or a person said. Take the word suffering. As I mentioned before, it has it's kind of a loaded meaning, but it can be signal more than just pain. Because when we are irritated or angry, yeah, great, this feeling, this suffering, it's not real. It's impermanent. That's great. That means I don't have to endure it for very long. And that's the way we look at it, right? But when, when we want something and can't have it or things aren't working out, how's it then? How's suffering then? So is it the same or is it different at the time? You know, is there a general way to experience suffering? Bhikkhu Bodhi says there is by by examination, investigation. And I was wondering, like, how to get at this in terms of zazen, because in all a lot of the talks we focus on what our mind is doing, what our mind is doing, and why we're not present, and so forth. And yet, you know, no one's um, really saying, you know, session's a body practice. I mean, I'm not doing anything with my mind. I'm just practicing my body and practicing my breath. Can we say that? Is that a different view? Or is that a more complete, complete view? And can we go further than say, I'm going to let go of that. It came up again. I'm going to let go of that. I'm letting go of that. It's let go. (laughs) Oh, there it is. Wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to pick it up again. What does it mean to let go? We have phrases like that that um, I I make me a little (laughs) talk about suffering. I get a little uncomfortable with because maybe letting go is forgetting about it. Forgetting about it. Okay, so you need to look at something really, really closely and acknowledge it and feel it and know it and, and then forget about it? I mean, like, I'm confused. What, what am I doing? So this is a process, though. Um, maybe when, in, in some traditions, looking at it from every angle, analyzing it, rephrasing it, reframing it, putting it with a teaching, all those things enables you to forget about it because you've you, it's done with. It's done with. It's gone. How do we view our pain in session? Uh, I, I'm not one of the lucky few that have no pain. <laughs> and But to see pain more as something that's a signal telling me. I'm not sitting in a way where the tension, there's being tension being created in my body from this pain. And to look at it as tension. Tension means uh, that it's being created, it's being squeezed, and then I can unsqueeze it, right? Pain sort of means like, oh, it's just there in my mind. And um, I have friends and people who have intractable pain, and that's a very difficult... I'm not talking about that kind of pain. So how do you sit upright, stay awake, not fall asleep, stay alert, don't feel tension, and fully relax? We say relax. Well, how do you do that if you can't move? How can I relax if I can't move? So these are things that we struggle with, right? Like, oh my God, I can't move. 
if you're claustrophobic, I don't know about Zen practice. <laughs> so anyway, um, so these are things that should sometimes start to shift and bubble up through the ice. I'm going to use that metaphor because it's incredible out there. And start to erode the ice and melt the ice in session. So as I said, session is a body practice. I'm practicing Buddha seat. This is my seat. This is Buddha seat. How does that happen? That's my body is sitting in the shape of the Buddha. So I, I mean, come on now. Where is it? <laughs> Where is the Buddha? It's on my seat. It's me, right? Oh, nobody's laughing. I think this is serious. <laughs> okay. So one tool that is uh, uniquely unifying in our practices, our breath. So we can talk about mind, and we can talk about body. But the breath kind of is always both things. The breath is always the expression of the mind in the body. The breath is always present. Like, this is beginning instruction, right? Let's attend to the breath. Um, And I, yeah, okay, beginning instruction, I get that. That's no big deal. Well, it's huge. It's huge. How long have you sat when you haven't seen the correlation between what your breath is doing right now and what your mind is doing right now? The two are intricately related and can be very helpful in your observations so that when you're kind of getting caught or, you know, wandering or focusing or concentrating, whatever you're doing, another way to look at it is through your breath. Just forget about the thinking. Forget about the thinking, the thoughts and the fantasies and the sensations. Look, look how the breath is forming this drive to desire to think or to create or whatever, to move away. Um, so that's a very big So um, when you're absorbed in a lot of thoughts and making this palace of construction or this hell realm, do you notice that you might be holding your breath? Your breath might be stopped. To really, I mean, I'm sure there's studies on this because they've looked at how people concentrate and how their faces form, what their tongues are doing, what their jaws are doing. I'm sure there's, look at what your breath is doing when you're really concentrating. Like if you're trying to thread a needle or make that painting line goes straight down the page. Your breath is stopped. And what does that do when you're not thinking and you're holding your breath? You know, we don't say um, anything about manipulation of breath in beginning instructions for a reason. For a reason. So what, what's happening when you have a shallow, fast breath? In, in the Doksan line, a shallow, fast breath in the Doksan line. How many people here, you don't have to raise your hand, have had a shallow, fast breath in the Doksan line? I think I did that for about 15 years. Cohen, Cohen study. What about frequent deep sighs? Maybe we need to really breathe deeply. How many of us breathe through our nose all the way up to our head and all the way down out the perineum? So to notice what the dharma is of breath. And then to look at what we're experiencing. Um, Oh, yeah, one other thing about breath. One thing that I work with with the inmates or beginning instruction is a common thing in beginning practice is that we end up regulating our breath to the count, regulation of the breath so that it's very, you know, it's not, the body isn't dictating it so much as the way we're focusing. And that's a turn, a shift of a view to allow yourself to breathe and then see the number, if you're using numbers, 
um, because it, it, your breath shifts as you relax. As you relax your breath, do you know what your breath does? Might be a good thing to check out. And then you want to look at your experience, the mind's experience during your noticing of the breath. You know, the, in the Pali Canon, there's a sutta on the mindfulness of breathing. And it's, I'm not going to go into that, but, um, you know, it talks about when, know when the breath is long, you know, when the breath is long, you know that the breath is long. So it's sort of saying what I'm saying, but in a more concrete way, um, maybe. So whatever is happening, uh, whatever is happening, no judgment. Just, just let's see it. So the sharp attention of awareness is like open space, allows for the open space. And this is a very good opportunity. So as you go along with this and you start to feel more comfortable in session and find session to be the place where you can find comfort. Uh, I remember when session shifted for me, I'd get have a certain amount of anxiety and tension and, you know, the first day and all this stuff. Um, and when that shifted to session was a place where I could just feel comfortable. That's that would be great, huh? And that that implies that there's a certain amount of trust and acceptance of the form to hold you to you you are embodying and there's no division. You don't even have to pay attention. You don't have to think about anything. Everything is scheduled for you. What's happening next? Oh, I have to figure it out. No. You know. The bell rings, you get up. It's very simple. You don't have to figure it out. So this is also right view. This is what is actually happening. Whatever is happening is right view. If you can notice whatever is happening. So I, I found another metaphor that I like. It's the ice metaphor. <laughs> um, a lot of people up who are visiting don't live up here, but a sort of kind of winter emergency can happen when there's a lot of snow, and it starts to rain, and the rivers fill up, and there could be massive flooding. It's, that's probably what the roaring you hear at night if you're at that end of the building. Um, so, And then the water pours off the snow and settles, and it freezes, and then there's these ice lakes. So we have rain, water, snow, ice, evap- and evaporation. This cycle of processes. Let's see if that can make this work. Um, (laughs) So on a sunny day, the ice begins to melt, and we get a puddle of water. So that's like us. We start to melt into, soften who we think we are, what we think we should be doing, uh, what our goals in life are, what what our values are, what we... You know, things start to soften and our view shifts, right? That's practice working. And then the water evaporates. We call it evaporate, but the water literally disappears. It dries up, it goes up and becomes a gas in uh, oxygen, hydrogen. And that's kind of the place of space and comfort and ease. The joy and ease of session, of zazen, of being in your body, of being yourself with what, who you are. And the thing is that this is happening from the beginning, all along, every minute. Because I discovered through um, Sanjo Wilder a new chemistry thing that's happening with ice. Um, so ice apparently easily changes into the liquid state first of water. It melts. But there's a concept called sub- sublime, 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 or sublimation. And I know that from psychology. It really means to transform more primitive, aggressive, uh, chaotic feelings into a 
malleable, creative expression. I, I mean, that's a general idea. But in chemistry, what it means is that as the ice is warming, it goes straight into gas. That's the sublime. It goes up. It goes, some of it is, doesn't just go into water. It goes right into gas. So yes, you are sitting on the Buddha seat. Yes, in your trouble or in your misery, in your you know, block of ice fixed on something and feeling trapped, you are sitting on the Buddha seat. You're evaporating or you're subliming into gas. That's, I know it's kind of a... So there's a, a mysterious unknown process that we can't always see. But <clears throat> our training is to see it in each other and to offer it to each other. Our teacher sees us that way. The, the teachings see us that way. And that's happening every minute, no matter what little vortex of something that's going down the creek and flowing that you can't manage is this sublime sublimation. So they're skipping the liquid. Um, so another aspect to, to this is the breath practice. Because if you think about it, we breathe in. I'm raising my hands up above my head. We breathe in to the heavens, to the sublime, right? We breathe out down through the earth. And this is the same kind of process of both evaporation and sublimation. That's the metaphor. So now I'm going to get down to talking about OG. Uh, myself a little bit this year, um, I, I had a chance to not just melt or evaporate or sublime. I had a fire under my ass <laughs> for practice. And I want to share that t- with people because there were certain things that happened that shifted my own view. Um, and this is about not a thinking view, but more like an experiential view. Um, <clears throat> so this has to do with my eyesight and... Uh, I've had glaucoma. It's a, it's a progressive blinding disease for 50 years. Um, most people who get it have it in their later life. I've had it since I was five. And so it's taken a lot of my sight. And through miraculous, incredible care, um, I didn't lose my sight. But this year, uh, through a fluky medical thing, procedure, uh, the disease took a turn from the worse, and I, uh, whatever medication was helping me um, stopped working completely. And it was over the course of eight months, and I started to go blind. I just wanted to say one thing about this. Um, I heard this ophthalmologist on the radio who said, and this is, this is like a public announcement, only 6% of the people who have this disease are diagnosed correctly. That means there are a lot of people walking around who have it and don't know it. And the reason you don't know it is it's because what it is is um, unremitting pressure on the optic nerve. And so when it presses on the optic nerve, it kill, kills off the cells. And it starts with your peripheral vision. So talk about concentration. You, you know, you may not notice losing of certain things. So I... Please get your eyes checked. Anyway, um, anyway, um, and I uh, had a lot of, um, I've had a fear of going blind, but a reality that it could be possible since I was a child. So that was there. And then the fear escalated, obviously. Um, and I was um, in, enmeshed in the medication and the treatment. I would go down to New York once a week or every other week just to see my eye doctor. She was a bodhisattva beyond belief. But finally, it, it really looked like... Um, and so this was going on for eight months. And finally, she had never mentioned the word surgery to me. 
because I have very little sight left, and surgery, in my case, was a very, very highly risky option. But then she mentioned it. And I was really freaked out and terror, is in terror. Anyway, I just want to tell you, I had surgery, and it went amazing, but that's not the story. (laughs) Um, I can tell you about that on Sunday. But anyway, um, what was interesting to me was I how I used my practice during this time. Because what am I sitting for if I can't apply what I'm seeing in my life on the cushion out in my real life? So I, I've had the opportunity to do that. And I want to share some of the things that I saw. <clears throat> So during this time, this is interesting too, I was reading this memoir um, called My Life and Lives. It's the autobiography of Kiangla Rato Rinpoche, Tibetan Buddhist scholar, incarnate Tolku Lama in the Galupka tradition, and he was born in 1923. And it was in a page turner. I mean, this was a fascinating book where he describes from the age of his family, early family life, then his monastic life starting at age six, all the way through his monastic training, uh, things that it encompassed and what was required of him. You think session is hard? <laughs> go, go try that. Anyway, um, anyway, um, in the book was. I was holding it like this, like up to my face, so I could read it. It was like drinking, thirsty drinking water when you're thirsty, because it was just that delicious. And it was old and yellow, and the type was like this big. And I was reading word by word by word by word. And so I was reading it like we're encouraged to do Dharma study, really, which it was. So anyway, he was very brilliant and very kind and loving. And um, he, he was highly successful. He, he got the Geshe degree, which is like a PhD in Buddhism, and won top awards. He was one of the three. He you know, coached the Dalai Lama. He was in the Dalai Lama's debate team. He was about a few years older. Um, began teaching and monastic responsibilities. Anyway, he was ensconced and loving his life. And then, of course, the Chinese invaded in 1959, and the diaspora occurred, and the flight to India occurred, which he recounts in detail. Um, And it was pretty horrific. And he was destitute. He didn't have monk's roads. He was flea-ridden. There was no place to sleep. There was no food. Everybody was in chaos. Nobody knew what they were going to do. Somebody finally got him some robes because he was such a high lama. And, and <clears throat> then I was just reading along, fascinated by the whole story. Oh, seems like such a lovely person. And... Um, he got to India, and there were sort of monks started to gather and to start to figure out what you know what are we going to do? Are we going to regroup and make monastery? Um, and they pressed him to step up as a leader, to 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 run a monastery, to form a monastery. And they said, "What will you do for the future? What will you do for the future?" <laughs> I was thinking of this when Gokhan was talking about, "Don't put your mind in the future. Don't put your mind in the past." So he said, and I was totally caught up short, he said, no, when one world is destroyed, a new one comes into being. I must enter this new world. This is what my training has taught me. What else could I do? And I was like stunned. He just turned his back completely on his successful, amazing accomplishments in a way. But this was his training. And so for me, that was like, ooh, he, he dropped it. He just let it go. And then, so he said, just so you know a little bit more about him, he said about 
asking how he could do this. And he realized that he needed to learn the language of this new world. And he didn't even know what language that was. He had never been in a car or an airplane or heard a radio. I mean, this is ancient Tibet um, in the 20th century. Uh, and he, he didn't know if he should learn Hindi or English. So he realized, somebody said, no, no, you got to learn English. So he studied really hard. He studied really hard, and he wanted to enter this new world. And the Dalai Lama sent him to New York by himself. There were no Tibetans here. He came in the 70s, and he said something like, I relished my new life as a stock clerk in a department store. I was like, oh, my God. He just, like, walked out on something. And I was just in awe. And um, I suddenly realized that um, I was possibly facing a a new world. I mean, I could come out of surgery blind. I could just lose whatever I had if... uh, you know, the process continue. And I realized, I felt in my experience, the dread, the fear. I didn't even look at the blind. I couldn't even look at going, going blind. That was just like, no, I can't, no. But I looked at him and his um, modeling and thought, okay, how do, how do I enter this? this new world. What do I do? Well, first, look at the present. Look what I'm feeling. So I looked at that very closely, and I asked myself, you know, if my training is of any use to me, what? let me use it here. So I, I looked directly at what my mind was doing with the fear. Um, <clears throat> I looked at the stress that I felt in my body very directly. Um, and uh, some of it is just, you know, what anyone would feel, helpless, sad, things like that. I was thinking I would be groping around. That's what I would, that's how I envisioned it. Just everything would be in chaos because I'd be groping. Um, but anyway, um, and part of this was due to the fact that my, my doctor didn't even mention the word surgery to me for eight months. We were just trying medication. And the medication was no fun. I was pretty sick on it. Because anyway. So to look closely at the thoughts and emotions of what you're feeling right now, in any kind of circumstance, but in an emergency or an urgent circumstance, it's a perfect time to look. And to know, to see as it's happening, to see what my mind is doing as it's happening. So to see that the creation of a, maybe it's a vague thought, but like, you know, I can't go there, I, you know, whatever it is, even if it's if something you can write on a wall, like this is what I'm thinking, so I don't work that way, but um, whatever it is, to see it directly, that what your mind is doing, when it's doing it, when it's doing it, so that's the first noble truth, that's right view. To admit no matter how aversive, uncomfortable, or subtle, what, what's being created, that I'm doing this. I, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. This is my reaction, right? It's not really preparing me. And it's like making mounds of ice and freezing, freezing, so that you think there's a false sense of stability in the fear or in the dread or whatever. So you just sort of keep yourself there and trapped in the ice. Um, And then I decided that I could change that view, that I could actually drop it. And I used certain, what I would call, co-emerging antidotes. So it's not denial, because I'm recognizing what's going on and how I'm making it more. And I made some antidotes. I use diligence and I use courage. So one of my antidotes was, um, you know, in a way, with, with luck, with, with skill, this could really save my sight. It's very simple. I'm, I'm going to go blind, I'm going to go blind, I'm going to go blind. It could be with luck, with skill, with diligence and kind care, 
this could save my site. Very simple. Um, the diligence um, <laughs> was interesting because the surgeon was not very forthcoming. He wasn't very verbal. He was great with his with his hands. <laughs> That's what you need. But I said, well, how do I need to prepare for this or what's going to happen? He says, can you sit on the couch for a month? (laughs) (laughs) What? Couch? Sit on the couch for a month? No problem. That's my dream. (laughs) So I was like, there, right there with that one. (laughs) So I was like, okay, couch potato. No, 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 no. Let's change that word. Couch potato means sort of numb, closed down, whatever. Couch hermitage. Couch hermitage. (laughs) Concentration. Diligence. And so I realized that part of the delicacy of the surgery, I had a valve implant put in which releases the pressure. So this is a device, tiny little thing. The success of it staying in my eye depended on my recovery, my diligence, my following practice instructions <laughs> to look closely at what the instructions were. Well, one was couch, or couch and the other one was, uh, oh, I don't know if I have that, no walking, no washing, or going outside. Whoa. That was, those were, I have a husband who was like a guard dog. <laughs> uh, that, that helped, because I'm, I'm not very good at, you know, anyway. But I, I made a good attempt. Um, so I just also decided that, um, you know, that I needed that I needed specifically to to interrupt the the fear, the quality of the taste of the fear, with um, something that would be delightful and encouraging and give me courage. So um, I decided that this implant, this valve. Uh, first, I was going to draw it. I went online to look at it, and I went, "Oh no, I'm not going to go. I can't. I can't. It was it was too scary, which is odd for me." But I decided that I'm going to. I just actually, this just happened spontaneously. I made images of courage. I drew lion families and uh, lost children being rescued on magic boats and female. Um, acrobats cavorting with elephants and birds dancing in flight. And all those things were very lovely, lo- lovely and gave me courage. And then finally I, um, I turned to my teacher and the sangha to guide me, which they did. Um, this is a tremendous healing benefit to me. And I encourage people in stress or trouble to reach out to each other. Um, And I realized also that this assisted my healing greatly. And I actually began to look forward to the surgery with hope. So I offer that to you because there are times when the world seems to be ending. And it's true. It is ending. Every, every minute, but sometimes it really feels like it's ending. So every moment, though, it's, it's beginning again until we have our last breath. So this, um, to be intimate with this and to um, see the reality of what things offer us and just to have a simple recognition of that, to turn towards what needs attention and care. So I want it to end with um, something that Sokni Rinpoche wrote where I think it's part of this. We practice in order to learn to trust ourselves more, to get confidence in what we know, to have faith rather than doubt. Loving kindness and compassion are innate capacities that we all have. And this capacity to care, to be at one with, to connect, is something that isn't destroyed no matter what we may go through. No matter what our life experience may have been, no matter how many scars we bear, that ability remains intact. And so we practice meditation 
in order to return to that spaciousness and to learn to trust our ability to love. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at cmm.org.